Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. You function strictly as a go-between. For which I'll get paid? 10000 Cold cash. Charles Bronson is St. Ives. What are the odds in a Rams-Dallas game? He'll bet on anything. Okay, 500. Even his life. I'm gonna take you out. Go between... You don't like me, do you? I don't like your questions. For you, uh, you're tough, smart. You got a, a lot of great looking bits and pieces. St. Ives, a go between who knows the places to find the people who have the answers. 10,000. An honest man goes to the police. A dishonest man settles the score in his own way. 20,000. I don't want to be an accessory. A hundred thousand. I don't move. As the stakes go up, the odds go down. Every time we find a stiff, you're around. And why is that? I guess I'm just lucky. You know something? You're all right. Do you have any doubts? He's clean. He's mean. He's a go-between. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie St. Ives from 1976. The studio was Warner Brothers. Release date was July 23rd, 1976. The running time, 94 minutes, and was rated PG. Roger Ebert at the time gave it two out of four stars. Here's his review. St. Ives is an ambitious Charles Bronson picture that looks good, but finally doesn't quite work. It's got atmosphere, an interesting cast, and some nice action scenes. But it bogs down in those speculations that are the bane of all crime mysteries. Like, for example, whoever killed the policeman must have known it was a Pan-American flight bag I had at the laundromat, etc., etc. Still, the movie has its moments. One of them comes early on, when Bronson, cast as a Los Angeles writer, is jumped by three thugs. They pull him into an abandoned warehouse. Terrible things are always going to happen in abandoned warehouses in Bronson pictures. So they mug him, rob him of $50, and prepare to throw him down an elevator shaft. You SOB, one of them shouts. You only have 50 bucks. And Bronson smiles calmly and says, It only took you five minutes to get it. That's $600 an hour. 
All right, so Ebert gives away more film details, and of course, that's my job. But the essential point is that he was disappointed with the film. So as a preteen growing up without cable, I would often scour the TV listings for any sort of movie that appeared on the basic TV stations. And inevitably, I would often find a Chuck Norris or a Charles Bronson film, and you know what? That would be good enough for me. I'm sure I first saw St. Ives back in those days, and once DVDs became the best and cheapest way to build a film collection, I had fun collecting these forgotten films from my favorite actors. All right, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Charles Bronson who plays Ray St. Ives. Now, I covered Bronson's early career in the Death Wish episode, which was the film that made him a superstar and solidified his tough guy persona for the remainder of his career. Between Death Wish and St. Ives, Bronson made four films, all with his wife, Jill Ireland. Those were Breakout with Robert Duvall, Hard Times with James Coburn, Breakheart Pass, and From Noon to Three. Jacqueline Bissett plays Janet, One of the most beautiful actresses of her era, the British-born actress began her career in the late 1960s. Her most notable films from then until St. Ives were Bullet with Steve McQueen, Airport, and The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean with Paul Newman. She also filmed a number of French and British films during this time period. The director, J. Lee Thompson. He was a frequent collaborator with Charles Bronson. They did nine movies together, and St. Ives was actually their first. Prior to St. Ives, Thompson's best-known films were with Gregory Peck, The Guns in Navarone, and the original Cape Fear, also with Robert Mitchum, also McKenna's Gold. I have a brief making of the film. So St. Ives is based on the 1972 novel, which was written by Ross Thomas. His pen name was Oliver Bleak, and this novel was called The Pro-King Chronicle. So the success of the novel led to the rights being sold to Warner Brothers the same year, but it actually took years to get the film finally made. And Bronson's normal romantic co-star, his wife Jill Ireland, turned down the female lead in St. Ives, and thus Jacqueline Bissett was cast. Okay, let's get into the film. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of clips available, so you're going to get a lot of me. It just means you're going to have to go check out the movie for yourself. So it begins with the sound of a typewriter giving the following details. Los Angeles, Sunday, 11.30 a.m., October 24th. Next, we see lawyer Myron Green, played by Michael Lerner. He arrives at a cheap hotel and wakes up Raymond St. Ives, of course, Charles Bronson, and St. Ives is a crime reporter. Myron is there to inform Ray that he has a summons from his ex-wife for alimony, which is $1,000 a month. Ray has been trying to write a novel, but he keeps getting rejected by the publishers. Now, the real reason Myron is there is because Ray has a job offer, but it sounds fishy. An eccentric millionaire named Abner Procaine, played by John Hausman. Now, people my age will remember him from his stoic voice in many commercials in the 1980s, specifically the Smith Barney ads. John Hausman for the investment firm of Smith Barney. Good investments don't walk up, bite you on the bottom, and say, we're here. Finding them takes good old-fashioned hard work, research, the kind they do at Smith Barney. Smith Barney is among a handful of top investment firms singled out for their work in research. Smith Barney. They make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. In any case, Abner wants to hire Ray as a go-between, and he'll pay $10,000 to retrieve five stolen ledgers that were taken from Procaine's safe. So next, Ray is driving to the Procaine estate while a great 70s score written by Layla Schifrin plays. Ray 
Ray arrives at the estate and is led in by the butler. Procaine is watching an old silent film from 1925 called The Big Parade on his reel-to-reel projection in his study. Procaine decides to explain the situation to Ray before his much younger quote-unquote girlfriend Janet, Jacqueline Bissett, enters the study to give the precise instructions that were given to her on the phone by the thieves. The thieves want $100,000 in old cash in exchange for the stolen journals. Who talked to him? I did. The thief or the man I spoke to. Call again this afternoon with specific instructions as to the exchange. He insisted that you be here when he called and that you act as a go-between. I think that's the expression he used. This is Janet Whistler. What else did he say? He demanded $100,000. Old money, mixed serial numbers. You want me to come with you tonight? That's not necessary. Besides, I'm being well paid for the risk. You'll be sure to call us immediately afterwards, then. Better than that, I'll be right here at your door. Ray is given a bag full of cash and is to deliver it to a laundry mat at 2 in the morning that night. Ray arrives as instructed and finds a dead man spinning in one of the dryers. A motorcycle cop happened to notice Ray's car lights were on and came into the laundromat to inform Ray of this. However, the cop also notices the body and arrests Ray for the murder. Two police detectives suspiciously just happened to be driving by and saw the cop detaining Ray. Now, these detectives are Frank Deal, played by Harry Guardino, and Carl Aller, played by Harris Ewan. The detectives take over the arrest of Ray and, of course, find the $100,000 in the bag. Ray is taken to the station and questions. Now, Ray calmly and politely answers all of the detectives' questions, though he doesn't say it's Procaine who gave him the cash. He just says he's holding the money for a little old lady. Lieutenant Charlie Blunt, played by Dana Elkar, knows Ray and explains to the detective who he is. The lieutenant simply asks if Ray stole the money. Ray, of course, says no, and the lieutenant tells the detectives to give his bag of cash back to him and let him go. (laughs) The detectives are a bit stunned, but they let Ray go. We also find out that the man killed was a small-time thief named Boykins with 16 petty arrests on his record. Ray goes back to his hotel and asks the doorman to put the bag of cash in the safe behind the front desk. It's now the next day, Monday, October 25th at 10.15 in the morning. Janet arrives at Ray's hotel. We see Ray on the phone making a bet on a football game. While Ray is a good crime writer, he's a bad gambler, and he often loses what he earns, which is why he lives in a cheap hotel room. Janet asks what went wrong the night before, but seems unfazed by the news of the dead guy in the dryer. Procaine received another phone call from a different voice, asking for ransom for the same journals, and Ray is going to be the go-between. Thank God for money, nice football. Mr. Procaine sent me to find out what went wrong. All he had to do was call. Oh, I asked him to send me. Well, in that case, come on in. Would you like some coffee? Fine. Oh, how about last night? I met up with a small-time thief named Boykins in the laundromat. Someone you know? 
past tense. When I saw him, he was bouncing around inside of a dryer with his head on backwards. Ah. Oh. oh, that's chicory coffee. Takes getting used to. Ah. Say that again. Hey, if you're going to sit there, I'll make up the bed. No, no, no. I like beds that have already been slept in. They're warmer. I don't think you understand about Boykins, or maybe I didn't make myself clear. But he was dead. Well, was that all there was to it? Maybe for you. But it was of some importance to Boykins. We had another call this morning. Another voice wanting ransom for the ledgers. He also wanted you to act as a go-between. He said he'd call tonight at nine o'clock with instructions. I'll be there. Do you always live like this? In cheap hotels? Yeah. By choice? Why else would anybody live in a cheap hotel? You don't like me, do you? I don't like your questions. It's for you. Uh, you're tough, smart, and you got a, a lot of great-looking bits and pieces. <laughs> I wondered when you'd notice. A little early in the morning for me to notice things like that. The mornings are forgetting over the nights before. But you should come around in the afternoon. Well... See you at nine o'clock. Are you throwing me out? No man in his right mind would throw you out. It's just that afternoons are better, really. Afternoons are perfect. I'll remember that. That night, Ray goes for some dinner at a Hofbrau. When he leaves the Hofbrau, he gets cornered by three guys. Now, the leader has a gun, and he's played by Robert Englund, who is famously now known as playing Freddy Krueger. Now, hood number three, as he's credited as, is none other than Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum actually made his film debut in the first Death Wish movie in 1974 as one of the killers and rapists. While the hoods try to find some cash on Ray, they're disappointed to find only 50 bucks on him, like Ebert mentioned. And it looks like they've received some bad info about Ray. So they decide to kill Ray by throwing him down an elevator shaft. However, Ray grabs Goldblum and almost pulls him down with him. However, Ray loses his grip and then grabs the wires halfway down. Ray escapes before they can crush him with the elevator and chase him throughout the abandoned building. Ray eventually does a sneak attack and knocks out all three men separately because, you know, he's Charles Bronson. Ray then decides to go to the Procaine estate to get some answers. Instead, Procaine gets another phone call with instructions for Ray to deliver the money again. This time, the men's room at the train station. Such nice places Ray gets to go to make some cash. So it's the next day, Tuesday, October 26 at 9.30 in the morning, and he goes to talk to a car chop shop guy named Johnny Parisi. Ray St. Ives. I don't know. I'll wait. St. Ives.
on in. I want to show you something. Looks just like any other car in the street. Get in. I got a surprise. <laughs> the boys are real artists, aren't they? Quarter-inch armor throughout quartz-class windshield. Expensive. Oh, Ray, how can you put a price on personal safety? I had to test it anyway. You're right. Personal safety is very important. What's on your mind, Ray? Stolen journals. Who stole them? Who's got them? Why are they so valuable? And why is someone dead? Maybe I'll be shippo can help. Are you involved? If I were, we wouldn't be talking. After the bulletproof car incident, Ray decides to continue his side investigation about the murder of the laundromat guy, that's Boykins, and also to figure out what the big deal is about these procaine journals and what they might be. However, most of these leads seem to be like red herrings and don't seem to lead anywhere for Ray. For example, like when he visits a guy associated with Boykins at a hotel and the guy is found dead after jumping or he was pushed out of a hotel window. And of course, Detectives Deal and Allard just happen to be on the scene when Ray arrives in the guy's room. Seems like too much of a coincidence to have another dead body appear when Ray is around, at least in the detective's mind. However, a prostitute saw Ray downstairs right about the same time the body was dumped, and so again, Ray's off the hook with his alibi. The next day, Ray goes to the Union train station to try to drop off the money again for procaine. It's a humorous scene as the toilets are pay toilets. Ray is instructed to leave the money in a specific stall, but it's occupied. A guy comes out of the stall next to the one Ray wants and tries to offer it to Ray, but he declines, saying he has a mental problem and can only go to the bathroom in a specific stall. The guy thinks Ray's nuts and leaves, but then a nerdy guy finally gets out of the stall that Ray wants and says he has the same problem as Ray. (laughs) So Ray sits on the toilet, and we see another bag push from the stall next to Ray's, and it's pushed to his. The journals are in the bag, and Ray pushes the cash underneath this other stall, and then he leaves. Ray goes to Procaine's house with the journals. As we come to find out, Ray has read the journals, which is a detailed account of Procaine's life and crime, as Ray puts it. However, Procaine freaks out when Ray tells him that four pages were missing out of one of the journals. Procaine attempts to pay Ray his $10,000 fee, but now Ray wants more. 
He wants to read the missing pages, and he agrees to stay on the case to retrieve them. All right, there's about 40 minutes left, and this is a good time to stop here because I can't give away the rest of the plot. And so what is in those missing journal pages, and how will Ray find them and stay out of harm's way? And what's the deal with Janet and her relationship with Procaine? Well, it's all answered in this very well-done 70s crime drama. Well, some of it's answered, and some of it's just more red herrings, but that's up to you to find out. Now, this isn't a typical Bronson film. It's more of a deliberate detective story that was common in the 60s and 70s. So if you're expecting a shoot-em-up action film, this isn't it. If you're into a good mystery with great actors, well, this might be the film for you. Now, I won't say the film is as good as something like Chinatown, not in the least, but it does have a 70s detective vibe to it, which I always appreciate. All right, some fun facts. So Marlon Brando and Steve McQueen were considered for the lead male roles of St. Ives by the film's original director, Dick Richards. The children of Charles Bronson apparently brought a lawsuit against Warner Brothers for allegedly failing to declare profits from the DVD and cable sales of St. Ives, and they claimed they were entitled to residuals for their father's work. The matter is believed to have been settled out of court. All right, I'm a huge Charles Bronson fan, so you're probably going to be getting many more Bronson films in the future and however long this actual podcast goes, which could be 40 years the way my DVD collection is. But hey, that's fun. Stick with me. And I'll be back next week with yet another random movie from my DVD collection. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Captain Video. Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.